In our series this morning, we come to one of the Puritans named Thomas Brooks, 1608 to 1680. The man who teaches, uh, one of the historians at Westminster Theological Seminary, Professor Carl Truman, wrote in 2012, so a good 10 years ago, the Puritans are undoubtedly one of the most significant sources for theology that is both doctrinal and practical in equal measure. Now he's saying a lot in that. It's all right to have our doctrine, but we need to continue to realise that it must be practical. It, it works out. It's not a matter of what we do, although that becomes part of the scene, but true doctrine, true grace issues out. As James says, faith without works is dead. So that's what he's getting at. Now, I've often been referring to J.I. Packer and he gets a Guernsey again this morning. Puritan as a name was in fact mud from the start. It was coined in the early 1560s. It was always a satirical smear word implying peevishness, censoriousness, conceit and a measure of hypocrisy over and above its basic implication of religiosity motivated discontent with what was seen as Elizabeth's Laodicean and compromising Church of England. That's some sentence. Uh, what does he mean by a Laodicean compromising? Well, it comes from Revelation chapter 3, the letters to the seven churches, where the Laodicean church is described as lukewarm. And the word that is used by John in describing this is that Jesus said that he will spit them or spew them or actually vomit them out of his mouth. It's a very strong word that he uses there. So that's what, that's what the Puritans often saw and Packer has picked that up. Now later the word gained the further political connotation of being against the Stuart monarchy. If you've been following the various kings and queens that were around or queens were the king's wives mainly, um, against the Stuart monarchy and for some sort of republicanism. That was during Oliver Cromwell. Its primary reference, however, was still to what was seen as an odd, furious and ugly form of Protestant religion. I think it still is today. If, uh, oh, you're a Puritan. Oh, uh, with a, a note of disdain in the voice without realising what the word Puritan actually is all about. The Puritans, however, emphasised a number of issues which concern us. The scriptures, dedicated Christian scholarship, Trinitarian theology, the electing grace of God, the cross, the applicatory work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of sinners. Now we've 
we've all lived through a, a period of great change. I can still remember that the procedure, when even when I was young, when you went to church, you carried a Bible. That very seldom happens today. If you've got a phone, that's my Bible. And I joke with some of my friends about holy phone. I don't think so, but at any rate, that's another story. But the Trinitarian theology, that when we worship, it is not just worshipping God. It is God who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And that should be an integral part of our time of worship. That should be emphasised so that everyone knows. The electing grace of God. The grace of God is not something that just appears, but he elects us into his grace. The cross, not just as a, a throwaway word, but what does the cross mean? It, it's good to ask the question, as the Puritans wrestled with, with the fact Yes, we know that Jesus died, but what did he accomplish in his death? What actually transpired there? What was done as regards Father, Son and Holy Spirit in respect to the cross? What was, what was done for us if we are the elect of God in the fact of the cross and of course the Reformation. You can't have a Reformation, a, a, a resurrection rather, you can't have a resurrection unless you have a death. So that's a good question for us to ask ourselves. If I'm a Christian, what do I understand happened on the cross as far as my life is concerned? And of course, the way that the Holy Spirit works in our lives. The church and biblical worship, scripture in all areas of life, they didn't minimise that, it covered every area. Personal conversion and the well-known verses of John 3, verse 3, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And James 2:17, faith without works is dead. But it was spiritual warfare that made the Puritans what they were. They accepted conflict as their calling, seeing themselves as the Lord's soldier pilgrims and not expecting to advance a single step without opposition. Not that they looked for opposition, but they certainly expected it. I wonder if we do. It's interesting when you talk to your friends who are not Christians as to how they respond to what you say to them regarding faith in Christ. Now Packer has written this, the Puritans lost more or less every public battle that they fought. Those who stayed in England did not change the Church of England as they hoped to do, nor did they revive more than a minority of its adherents. And eventually they were driven out of Anglicanism by calculated pressure on their consciences. They dispersed overseas, particularly to the Netherlands, and of course the large group that went in the Mayflower to America. Again, it's Packer who has written, Puritanism was an evangelical holiness movement 
seeking to implement its vision of spiritual renewal, national and personal. So it, it's got a wide coverage in the state, the church, the home, in education, evangelism and economics, in individual discipleship and devotion and in pastoral care and competence. Now why have I put not these just these words from Packer but why the emphasis why do I keep on referring to these aspects because this is what the Puritans set out to do they weren't just churchy types on Sunday it was the, the whole of their life during the week that involved them in their ministry as, this, as Puritans it, their theology could not be hidden it wasn't in a broom cupboard at home. Everywhere they went in business, in the practice of their behaviour, when they used to talk to one another on the street corners, because there was no television in those days, so they, they couldn't escape to that. And it says to us, well, how do we relate to these beliefs if we claim to be, say, reformed, if we claim to be evangelistic, if we claim to be believers, for that matter, how do we relate to these aspects which are so important to the Puritans? Do we leave it behind in the, in the door of the church? Do we just think, well, that's another matter? Do we flick a switch, which we're all tempted to do at times, particularly if you're in, in the company of people who don't appreciate what you're on about? But it makes us think, and I believe this is a vital thing that we need to keep on considering. How do I think? How do I think about what I believe? How do I think about what the Bible is teaching, about what God is saying? Who am I in it all? Now again I've put in what we've done for a couple of weeks, not last time but uh, the previous weeks, the 17th century monarchs and you'll see where Thomas Brooks fits in his, in his date. James VI was on the throne, he became James I, he was the son of, of Mary Queen of Scots who ultimately lost her, her head and uh, Lord Darnley was apparently his father. And he was the first one to combine in rulership Scotland and England. It was while Brooks was a young boy that the authorised version was published, the King James Version. But then he lived through a tumultuous times of kings losing their heads, Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell and the Republic uh, into the period of Charles II, uh, who was still king when Brooks himself died. And then I've added the other rulers there just so that you know what happened. The musicians and composers we've referred to a couple of times. Uh, not, not many hymn writers that I could discover, but certainly Isaac Watts was uh, one that came to be. So I won't go through all the composers. I'm sure you've got records and CDs or whatever we can use at home to, 
to encourage your music appreciation. But it is important that we keep on referring to the great ejection because this was a very significant occasion. It's hard, uh, hard for us, certainly hard for me, to appreciate what life was like during this time when there was no provision if you lost your job. There was no pension. There was no uh, government aid. There was nothing and nobody except your own family or your friends who could help you out. Now we've mentioned this a couple of times and, and I will this week and next week that after the restoration of Charles II in 1660 and St. Bartholomew's Day, August the 24th, 1662, called Black Bartholomew, the Parliament passed this Act of Uniformity and some 2,500 ministers were turfed out with no provision whatsoever for their next meal, their next bed, their next clothes, their next nothing. And it was only their friends and relatives who could help them. They were rejected totally out of the church because they would not conform to the Book of Common Prayer, its use. They didn't believe that the Church of England should be settled with, with the Book of Common Prayer as it was in those days. So let's look at Thomas Brooks in the light of all this. Compared to other Puritans, little is known of his life. His birth county is unknown. There is no portrait, because they used to draw, draw their portraits in those days. His strong personality, though, is shown in his writings. He matriculated as a pensioner, which doesn't mean poverty. Uh, the word pensioner was used in those days, and it's hard to really work out what it meant in respect to university education. It suggests that there was some sort of work that you did, but you were still regarded as a pensioner. Uh, he, he matriculated on the 7th of July, 1625. He entered Emmanuel College, Cambridge, aged about 17. This was the same year that Charles I came to the throne of England and Scotland. He loved, this is to encourage you all, and me too, he loved and was skilled in Hebrew, Greek and Latin, but seems to have left before graduating and he was ordained in 1640. So there's some mystery about this. We don't know that he ever did graduate. So maybe it got a bit tough for him. Most of his years, though, between 1625 and 1640 are unknown. That's an extensive period of 15 years. Nothing is known. He strongly supported the parliamentary cause during the Civil War. That's when Cromwell was in charge, 1642 to 48, and he was chaplain to the parliamentary forces on both land and sea. As a chaplain to the parliamentary fleet, he spent some years at sea and he wrote 
I have been some years at sea and through grace I can say that I would not exchange my sea experiences for England's riches. What sea experience? We don't know. If you compare it to what John Newton went through, it's a bit strange, isn't it? But whatever it was, God worked in his life and that's the other thing that irrespective of where we are or what we're going through never suggests that God has left us. I've said a couple of times Jesus promised I will never leave you nor forsake you. He knows where we are all the time. He knows where every unbeliever is. He he keeps an eye on them too. The human race is his family. Sure, the believers are, if, if you want to use the term, his special family. But you can't hide from God. You might remember if you played the game when you were little. If you, can you remember back that far when you were little? Uh, I've still seen children do it because I used to do it. You put your hands over your face and you say, you can't see me. And you think... Nobody can see me because my hands are over my face, which of course is very childish, but it's a bit of fun when children do that sort of thing. So we don't know what the experience was, but we all go through experiences of a variety of type types. Some of them we keep privately to ourselves, but the lessons of them are never lost. God uses all these situations. Although the new model army which, uh, of parliament, which was actually a standing army, which was formed in 1645 and went on to 1660 during the reign of Charles II, although that model army was victorious in the Civil War, parliament and the army fell apart. They just couldn't continue together. Brooks was a preacher in London at Thomas Apostles. I haven't a clue where Thomas Apostles was except it was in London and it was the name of the church. He preached before the House of Commons which was referred to as the rump of the long parliament. I'll talk about that in a minute. He did that in 1648 in December with his sermon published as God's delight in the progress of the upright. It was based upon Psalm 44, verse 18, which reads, Our heart is not turned back, neither have our steps declined from thy way. So it is obviously a prayer, a statement of faith in God. But what about the rump? The Rump Parliament was the English Parliament named after Colonel Thomas Pride who was a parliamentarian commander. He purged the Long Parliament. There was a Long Parliament and a Short Parliament. He did that on December the 6th, 1648. Got rid of those members who were hostile to the Grandees. The Grandees was an aristocratic title for a certain number of fellows. 
they had the intention to try King Charles I for high treason. So there was all sorts of ramifications of this business of the long parliament, the short parliament, the rump, the way it all happens. But what about rump? We've all got one, haven't we? Um, we normally use it in reference to cattle. But rump normally means the hind end or the backside of a mammal. Its use here, meaning remnant, was first recorded in the above context that we've talked about in English. Since 1649, the term rump parliament has been used to refer to any parliament reduced in size from its legitimate predecessor. So you've got the parliament, it loses a number of parliamentarians, only the rump is left. On the 8th of October 1650, a Thanksgiving day for Cromwell's victory over the Scots at Dunbar the previous month, he again preached before Parliament. Now the English and the Scots were frequently fighting. They wouldn't do that today, of course. But he preached from Isaiah chapter 10 verse 6, which I think is a rather cruel, a very cruel text to use for a sermon against the Scots. And I'll tell you what it is from my uh, ESV version. Now, the setting of this is judgment on Assyria for their arrogance. 10 verse 6 in the ESV version says, Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. I don't think those words are geared to encourage the Scots very much, nor to encourage anybody else, because it's, it's talking about God's judgment against the nation of Assyria that was Israel's enemy. But that's the verse that he chose in 1652, in the face of opposition, Brooks moved to St Margaret's Fish Street Hill, another church, also in London. The complaint against him was his refusal to administer the sacraments to folk he deemed unworthy, a testimony to his strong conscience. Now when I read that I thought that again is a significant comment you might like to ask, well, how do we regard the, the Lord's Supper in our church? The word sacraments uh, I don't use. Uh, I use the word ordinance because sacraments comes from the Latin sacramentum and uh, it can give the idea of something special that's beyond what we're supposed to be about. Uh, but it was used in those days, so... People are sitting in church and he, he would know who they were as the minister or the pastor and he would refuse to have certain people take the Lord's Supper because they were un unworthy. 
he had a very strong conscience about it. Uh, it is good at times for us to ask the question, well, what happens in my church where I attend regarding the Lord's Supper? Is it open for everybody? Is it introduced in such a way as the Presbyterians used to, uh, who they fenced the table, uh, which was a, a, an imaginary sort of a fence that was around the table and you couldn't take the Lord's Supper uh, unless you were deemed worthy. Was it like used to happen to me when I was young, uh, even in a Baptist church as a teenager, when the message would be very clear from Corinthians, let a man examine himself and then let him take the bread and the wine and if you don't, if you're not a Christian, you don't feel that you should take the Lord's Supper, then as we sing the next hymn, you may leave the service. Leave the service. I don't think that sort of thing is done much today. But that's something, again, for us to think about. What am I doing when I take the Lord's Supper? How important is it? And when I was teaching history, I used to ask the students... Uh, when you take the Lord's Supper, when you're involved in this, is, is God more present when you take the, the Lord's Supper than he is in a service without the Lord's Supper? What's the significance of taking the bread and the wine? Does anything happen? Uh, sometimes you see children after the, after the service scoffing themselves with remaining bread. Or if you go to some churches... The idea is that the priest out the front in both the Anglican and the Catholic Church scoffs everything down himself and makes sure that he's consecrated a bit extra of wine so he can have an extra drink. That sort of thing goes on. So what, what do we believe about the bread and the cup in respect to our own walk with Jesus Christ? It's worth giving serious consideration to. We go on to say that on St. Bartholomew's Day in 1662, he was one of many ministers evicted from their parishes and this drove him into nonconformity. Obviously, he wouldn't use the Book of Common Prayer. However, he both resided and preached in proximity to St. Margaret's, so he still had some ministry. During the plague of 1665 and the great fire of 1666, he continued to minister to the needy. In two successive years of the 17th century, London suffered two terrible disasters. In the spring and summer of 1665, an outbreak of the bubonic plague spread from parish to parish until thousands had died and the huge pits dug to receive the bodies were full. Now we've seen that in modern times of, of warfare overseas, etc. Um, pits are dug and the dead aren't buried separately, they're just all, all turfed into the hole. In 1666 though, the Great Fire of London destroyed much of the centre of London, and we've mentioned this before, but also helped to kill off some of the black rats and fleas that carried the plague Bacillus. The bubonic plague, a, a ghastly disease, was known as the Black Death. 
but it had been known in England for centuries. The victim's skin turned black in patches and inflamed glands or buboids in the groin, compared with compulsive vomiting, swollen tongue, splitting headaches, made it a horrible, agonising killer. So there's always been pestilence. The Bible says that. The scriptures are very clear that there will be pestilence. There will be all sorts of troubles and difficulties. But the end is not yet. These are all pointers to the return of Christ. In volume six of Brooks's works, there's a 312-page treatise entitled London's Lamentations. It's based on Isaiah chapter 42, verses 24 and 25, which I'll read. 42, verses 24 and 25. Again, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey? So it's a question and answer in that verse. So he poured on them the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set on fire it set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burnt him up, but he did not take it to heart. Which says they didn't learn the lesson. They didn't, he didn't work out, the nation didn't work out, in other words, what God was trying to teach them in this whole situation. So it's poetic language. It's meant to bring a very strong message in its meaning. And these verses, as they were given, are described as perhaps the most remarkable contemporary memorial of the Calamitous event. It was Israel's refusal to hear. That's what the prophet is concerned about. The word came to them and they kept on pushing it to one side which again is a pointer for us. How do we receive the word? Now some sermons might be boring, some sermons might go on for too long, some might be off with the fairy somewhere, or it's easy to tell that they were not well prepared. But we've got to come back to the, to the scriptures. What effect do the, the, does the scriptures, the word of God, have on my life? Do I find myself continually saying, well, that's for other people? Do I find myself refusing what the word says? The, the, you never graduate, do you? You never graduate to say, well, I've, I've finished all of that. I can get on with something else. No, the scriptures are always our teacher, irrespective of how bad the preacher might be. And so it comes again to the point of how do we think about the scriptures, about what God is saying. Down a bit further, preaching and writing a succession of treatises occupied him between the years 1652 and 1680. The first was called 
Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Not a bad title for a book. His wife Martha died in 1676 and he wrote in regard to her, she was always best when she was most with God in a corner. She has many a whole day been pouring out her soul before God for the nation, for Zion's and the great concerns of her own soul, when them about her did judge it more expedient that she had been in her bed by reason of some bodily infirmity that did hang upon her. But the divine pleasures that she took in her corner did drown the sense of pain. That's an incredible sentence, really, when you, when you look at it. To, to work out what's he getting at. There were people who said, you know, she's, she should be in bed. She's, she's unwell. Her reply is to go into a corner and to pray, to keep on praying. That was some woman. Brooks describes 12 of Satan's devices and their remedies in this Precious Remedies book and then focuses on eight devices that Satan uses to keep believers from using the means of grace. He suggests remedies that keep saints in a sad, doubting condition of learning, divisions among the godly, excuse of ignorance. So this is spiritual medicine. This is really what he's writing. Uh, I haven't seen the book, but... It's, uh, it's something apparently that he talks about what the devil is up to and God's answer for the variety of things, God's remedies for these situations and this is how to do, do it. What I take from this is that we're going through some sort of difficulty ourselves. It might be personal, it might be family, it might be in our church, it might be anywhere. And we turn to the scriptures and we read it. But then once we've read something, what do we do with it? Uh, I think the tendency can be to read a passage of scripture, then close the Bible or have a quick prayer. But what Brooks is getting at is that you read the scriptures and you apply it to yourself with the aid of the Holy Spirit. Apply it to yourself and to your own situation like you would medicine, like you would a dose of pills or a plaster or something like that, so that it is not just pushed to one side, but it becomes integral to your own thinking and your own situation. That's, that's really what he's getting at in the idea of the remedies. The ministry of numerous pastors has been enriched by their praying wives, so his wife has a message for us. He lived for three more years after her death and then married Patience Cartwright. I don't know whether the word patience is used very much for, for girls today, but it's a, you'd need to be a, have a patience if you were the wife of some ministers, I guess. No children came from either marriage and six months after making his will, he entered into the joy of his Lord. That's a great way to say that he died, isn't it? We look forward to that when, when we die. 
to, to enter into the joy of our Lord. That's, I'm looking forward to that. Now, I've just listed a number of his, of his books here. You can obtain some of them. Uh, the Works of Thomas Brooks is six volumes of 3,000 pages. In it, these, some of these are modern paperbacks that you can get hold of. The volume Heaven on Earth was a treatise on assurance, 320 pages, so we could ask ourselves, well, do I really have assurance as a Christian? A lot of, a lot of professing Christians don't have any insurance. Not insurance, assurance. It's a difference. Assurance. How do you know that you're a Christian? You're talking to someone and they say, you're a Christian. Oh, how do you know that? Or how do you become a Christian? We need to be able to answer it. Joel Beakey and Randall Peterson, who, who are modern authors, who have written a tremendous lot on the Puritans, wrote, There is no higher privilege than to be a child of God and to know it. For assurance brings joy to worship and prayer and strength and boldness to our witness. That's a good suggestion. He wrote The Mute Christian Under the Smarting Rod. Interesting title. Brooks writes, It is the great duty and concern of gracious souls to be mute and silent under the greatest afflictions, the saddest providences and sharpest trials they meet with in this world. In other words, keep your mouth shut. And uh, the recommendation is it's highly recommended for anyone going through trials that they cannot change. There are some trials that we go through, we pray about it, and things don't change. We can go on for years and years and nothing changes. So what do I do? Do I stop praying? Do I change my method of prayer? Uh, how do I go? Well, this is the sort of book, apparently, that is good medicine for when you're in a situation and there's no alteration. Smooth Stones from Ancient Brooks. This was selected by C.H. Spurgeon. It's a Puritan paperback, a collection of sentences, illustrations and quaint sayings from that renowned Puritan Thomas Brooks. And Spurgeon would say, Never put off conscience with any plea that you do not stand by in the great day of your account. So the conscience, which the Puritans all the time focused on, is not to be played with. I thought this was good from Peter Lewis. I mentioned him last week, his little book, The Genius of Puritanism. He says it began under Elizabeth I who suspected it, grew under James I who feared it, increased in power under Charles I and his archbishop, William Lord, remember him, who despised it, gained a brief but august ascendancy under Cromwell who honoured it and ended under Charles II and his bishops who hated it. That's what they thought of Puritanism. His book on godly living at home has been described as faithful leadership and family worship are the right and left hand of godliness in the home. 
So I need to, to ask, do you have family worship in your home? Do you pray as husband and wife together and read the Bible together? Do you have a separate time of prayer and Bible reading yourself? Well, John, I'm pretty busy. Yeah, I know. We all are. And even when you retire, you're busier than ever. There's always something to do, isn't there? Always something to do. And it's a matter of discipline. And it's a matter of saying, no, this is what I'm going to do and God's going to help me with it. Brooks wrote, a family without prayer is like a house without a roof. Be great this weather anyway. Open and exposed to all the storms of heaven. Again, it's Joel Beakey and Mark Jones this time who wrote, God saves us to live in Christ and to walk in holiness. Christ purchased us with his precious blood so that we could partake of all his benefits. The Holy Spirit is given to us for our growth in grace and holiness of life. Every moment of our day is a call to holiness. God demonstrated his own heart for holiness by crucifying his son, the Lord of glory, for our sin. Let this be a reminder that we must seek our all in all in Christ. In other words, our whole focus in whatever we're involved in has got to be in Christ. So that Christ is the very context of our living. For faith to live in Christ, strive in the strength of Christ and his spirit to bring every thought, word and deed captive to the obedience of Christ. So let's pray and thank God for what he said. Our Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to meet this morning to to turn back the clock of, of time, the clock of history and to delve into the lives of some of these people who lived hundreds of years ago. But help us, enable us to realise that although we live in a different century and a different time and our world is so different, as human beings we're still the same. We're only sinners saved by grace. And Father, we pray that from the lessons of history, from these people that we're looking at, husbands and wives that we've seen, that you aim at us to stop and realise that we too are here for a purpose. We're not here by accident. We're not here simply because of some fate. We're here because you have placed us here. And even in this building this morning, we're not here by accident. We're here to hear your word and to realise that you are working within us. So bless all of us by your grace and goodness. May your Holy Spirit work in our lives for the glory of Christ. May the respective churches that we come from hear the word continually and rise to the call of Christ himself to proclaim this gospel. We thank you in our Saviour's name. Amen.